I'm your host, Brandi Fleck, and this is Human Amplified. We're on a mission to revamp society by amplifying your humanity. This week on the show... My name is Corey Hatfield. And then a hush falls across the room. (laughs) We all have 24 strengths in us. Your brain has the power to shape the world around you. What's the good life? Cognitive dissonance, have you ever heard of it? I remember realizing what my environment had been growing up and how that probably shaped my worldview. On the surface, this episode is all about realizing your strengths and using them to their fullest potential. Underneath, it's all about a foundational self-awareness so you can have relationships, even with people who look different and talk different than you, and connect and interact with the world in a productive, fulfilling way. You get expert insight into using positive psychology to minimize the effects of negativity and keep a realistic perspective of your life in the grand scheme of things. Corey Hatfield is a psychology specialist known for fostering powerful change in education and communities. He's an expert at helping others apply strength mindsets, resiliency, choice theory, and full capacity living. Currently, Corey coaches teachers and administration on how to implement an evidence-based social and emotional program focused on character strengths. He's a certified K-12 Kentucky school counselor with a master's in counseling. He's also a public speaker, having participated at more than 15 conferences, including one keynote appearance. Corey speaks on topics such as personal potential, positive parenting, effective leadership through awareness and application of personal strengths, the implications of positive psychology on mindset and choice, and living in the present moment. Corey is the creator of the Corey's Got Questions podcast. On his podcast, guests bring a topic they're passionate about, And Corey facilitates a discussion through the lens of psychology. Topics have ranged from metal music to street art to misdiagnoses in health and dad goals. One of Corey's top character strengths is curiosity, so his podcast is only fitting. Corey is also a husband and dad, now living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And guys, Corey mentioned some really helpful resources throughout this episode. You can find all links and more information in the show notes at humanamplified.com front slash episodes front slash 061. Support this show by purchasing from our new line of merch at humanamplified.com. With a nod to 90s nostalgia and a focus on elements of our laughing skull, This first batch of designs celebrates the release of the Human Amplified podcast season three running from January to May of 2021 with new episodes dropping weekly on Tuesdays. From mugs to hats to shirts, stickers, and premium adjustable face masks, you'll be able to practically incorporate a piece of unique gritty artwork into your everyday life. All artwork was designed by me, Brandy, with you in mind. I got super picky and tested out each product too. I can say with certainty that I love the quality, available colors, comfort, sizes, cuts, and details down to every last stitch of embroidery. Hello, listeners. My name is Corey Hatfield. Um, For the past three going on four years now, I have been a team lead for a social emotional learning program. And so what that is, is it's bringing the human side to education 
And so I train teachers to bring in some elements of psychology, um, uh, some other constructs to kind of do the human side of teaching, if that makes sense. Before that, I was a career coach for a year and a half, and I'm also a certified K through 12 school counselor. So what you do, is it considered, I don't really guess that's considered school counseling anymore, but can you give us an example of some of the things you teach the teachers? Yeah. So like, so obviously like school counseling, you'd be working more directly with the students, but the whole objective of a school counselor, I always like to think of it as raising the floor up for everybody. So just trying to make the whole climate better across the whole school. Okay. So my job now is similar to that, except instead of working directly with students, I work uh, directly with teachers. So I start with teachers, seeing what things that they're needing to support their own wellness, and also equipping them with tools so that they can build, you know, powerful relationships with their students in a fast and efficient way. Gotcha. So why did you get into psychology and this line of work with schools? What is it about the human mind that fascinates you? That's a good question. And I always like to say when I was an undergrad that I didn't really choose the major. It kind of chose me. So when I was taking my general ed classes, my psychology course is really the one that spoke uh, directly to my heart and to my mind. And it just kind of clicked. It all just made sense. So I think that's kind of what originally got me into psychology. One of my favorite things that fascinates me about the mind is its ability to, um, it's actually a psychological phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. Have you ever heard of it? Absolutely. <laughs> it's my favorite one. <laughs> when I first learned about it, I was like, that's amazing. It explains so many things. Yeah. But it's almost like you shape the world. Your brain has the power to shape the world around you um, internally. So. The cognitive distance, what it basically means is that if something's out of balance in your life, your brain doesn't like that, so it makes it in balance. So for the classic example is a fox is walking along. He sees some grapes up in a tree. He tries to get the grapes, realizes that the grapes are way too high. He's not going to be able to reach it with his height. So he leaves and decides that he never wanted the grapes in the first place. So you can see that imbalance there. I want grapes. I can't get the grapes imbalance. So either we change our circumstance or we change our minds. That's cognitive dissonance. And gotcha. we all do it every day, all day. Oh. <laughs> it's just, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. I've talked about cognitive dissonance in my life with like religion and relationships with parents and how it all sort of shakes out, but we don't have to get into that huge topic now, but maybe we can talk more on cognitive dissonance a little later. Oh, yeah. Relationships is a fun one. Yes. I don't want to be alone, and I don't want to be in this relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what do you do with that? Yeah. This isn't a good relationship, and I don't want to be alone. Yeah. Yep. Well, okay. So we just talked about how humans sort of shape or balance what's going on in our minds this is sort of related. Do you think every single human has unlimited potential? I saw that in the list of questions that you had for me. And I was like, ooh, this is a deep one. <laughs> and I think this is something that actually divides the field. So there you got one half of people that are like, you can do whatever you want, whatever you set your mind to, you know, that's like growth mindset, 
uh, the idea that if you have a goal and you work towards it, you can achieve it. Then there's this other half of the field that believes things are more fixed and there's more of that genetic code. You just are what you are and there's not much you can really do about it. I kind of personally, I kind of combine the two and I make something that I call bubble theory. Okay. So if you think on a continuum, like use IQ for an example, like you can take a very low IQ, IQ all the way up to a very high IQ. So the people that say things are fixed, they're like, you got your IQ, you're stuck with it. You can't really move it up. Someone with a growth mindset says that you can develop your brain, your brain's a muscle, and you could probably move your IQ up. And let's not even worry about IQ because it's not even a big deal on that side. I believe if you're looking at that continuum, there'd be like a bubble and you exist in one of those bubbles. So you have potential to reach to the top of your bubble and you also have potential to fall to the back of your bubble or anywhere between. So we all have the potential to grow, but unlimited, I think it's a nice, it's a nice thing to say to someone that like you can do anything you want. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you really think of it, as something that's so outside of a realistic goal for them, it can almost be cruel. Gotcha. Like, if someone's five foot two, for me to be like, you can put, you can do whatever you want. You can be six foot one day if you really want to be. Yeah. You know, and I like was like truly believing that. I'm like, if you do these stretches or if you eat this food, you really will be six feet one day. Um, you can almost see that as kind of cruel on my side to do that to somebody if that's not in the cards for them. That makes sense. Yeah. So we definitely have physical limitations, but say if a person gets to the front side of their bubble, mm -hmm. can they then expand it once they get there? So this is all like me making this up. Yeah. <laughs> There's no science sure. behind any of this. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know what would happen at the edge of your bubble. So not talking physical, but talking like brain stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, your brain is a muscle too. So I keep wanting to say like typing or something like that, but I do think there is potential to push the edge of your bubble a little bit. But again, going back to IQ, I don't think you're going to be able to take someone from uh, IQ of 80 and get them all the way up to like an IQ of like 150. I don't think that's really possible. Now someone with an IQ of 80 might be able to get up to like a 90 mm -hmm. um, and be a very, uh, you know, productive 90 and be doing all the things that someone at 90 is capable of. Yeah. Okay. What are character strengths? One time someone asked me at a party because like he had a, a tattoo of like a guitar or something. I'm like, oh, it's cool uh, that you have a guitar. And he's like, oh, do you play? I'm like, no, I can't really carry uh, a tune. And he's like, oh, you should try it. You should, you should get into it. And I was like, here's the thing. I could give a whole bunch of effort. I could try really hard and I could probably get pretty decent at the guitar. However, I would still only be decent at it, even after hours and hours and hours of practice. Why wouldn't I instead take that energy and place it somewhere on something that I have a natural gift in? And if I have a natural potential and a gift for it, mm -hmm. why wouldn't I instead do that? You know, if you want to think of it in a physical way, I'm a tall, skinny guy. I don't know if you're your listeners probably won't be able to see me, but I'm tall and skinny. So I was a runner growing up. Uh, I could have done a lot of energy and focus on being something that requires someone to be much more broad, like football, wrestling, something like that. And I probably could have gotten pretty decent and played a position. However, by focusing on running, I had, uh, you know, a lot more success there. I was one of the best runners in my state. I got 
college scholarships, all kinds of stuff doing that. So character strengths are kind of like that same idea. So we all have 24 strengths in us. You want some backstory in the whole strengths, where they come from, positive psychology, all that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I talk about this stuff a lot in my day-to-day -day job. So the field of positive psychology, Martin Sleeman um, was the president of the APA, the American Psychological Association, in the 90s. And up until that point, the field had done a really good job of understanding what can go wrong in human beings and how mental illness can set in. And what are some things that we can do to help people heal? They've done a really good job at that. Mm -hmm. However, as Martin noticed, we had missed this whole other side of what it means to be a human being in the psychology of a human being. Brandy's shaking her head, nodding <laughs> knowingly, which is what makes for the good things. You know, what's the good life? Yeah. What is the meaningful life? Um, what makes us all connected? Those things. And so he partnered with uh, Chris Peterson and 55 scientists. And they looked out through all of the world, all cultures, and throughout history, and they were trying to answer the question, what makes for a meaningful and purposeful life? And through those series of research studies, they um, discovered the 24 character strengths. Okay. Now, the first thing we say with the character strengths is that everyone has all 24 of them, so you have the capability to do any of them. So some examples of them are like things like leadership, bravery, humor, zest. Um, social intelligence, love, kindness, and the list goes on. Um, however, each of us will have a, uni a unique combination of those strengths. So you'll have your 1 through 24, I have my 1 through 24, and they're ranked. And the whole idea of being strength-based, or really playing to character strengths, is to focus on your top four to six strengths. And shifting more and more of your energy and focus to those top strengths. Because if something's a top strength, it is typically easy for you to do. It's energizing when you use it. That's a big piece. Is it if it's energizing or not? And you probably do it often. It's almost every day you're doing this. Just the opposite. If something's a bottom strength, which everyone's always curious, what's their last strengths? Uh, those are typically not easy to do. They're difficult to do. They're not energizing. They're emotionally draining to do them. And you probably don't do them every day. It's probably more rare that you do this. But they're not weaknesses? No. No, they're not weaknesses. They're just lower strengths. Okay. So, and that's where people get with uh, character strengths. There's a phenomenon that we all do, which is called the negativity bias. So the negativity bias is our brain's pattern of looking for problems rather than good things. Our brains over, you know, the past... 200,000 years, have evolved to keep us alive, not to keep us happy. So we're really good at looking and finding things that are wrong and trying to fix it or alleviate it. Um, you can think of this as like if you're at your job and you get a performance review and you're doing 99 things excellent, and then you get one area that's opportunity for growth, right? And that's the, what's the one thing you can't get your mind off of? The one thing you talk about later at dinner and the thing that drives you nuts and makes you bitter about your work is that one thing. But you did 99 things excellent, but we focus on the one. Uh, in fact, the, ne the negativity bias is so perverse that they actually say if you want to have just a normal, balanced relationship 
you have to have five positive interactions to one negative interaction. Oh. And that's just to keep it neutral. Yeah. Not even to make it a good relationship. So one of the things with strength-based work is to intentionally shift more and more of your focus to the good in your life. Um, the reason why is because when you do that, you can have a more like realistic view of what your life is actually like. A lot of people, when they hear uh, strength-based approaches, positive psychology, they think, oh, so now we're just going to be happy all the time and ignore all the problems. And I say, no, because we don't have to worry about you forgetting what the problems were. You're going to know the problems. You're going to ruminate about them over and over. However, we intentionally focus on the good. So again, we can remember the good things. Another fun thing about the negativity bias is that the science shows that a bad experience, an uncomfortable experience, or emotionally you know, hard experience is solidified in your hippocampus, which is your emotional memory part of your brain. Uh-huh. It takes about five seconds for it to be solidified in your permanent memory. Oh, wow. Just the opposite. A positive experience requires about 60 seconds, so a whole minute before it becomes solidified. Wow. So we can be having these wonderful experiences, and we forget them all. We forget all of them. But those bad experiences, we, we remember quickly. So then a year goes by, you look back on that past year, and it's, oh my gosh, it's only been bad things. We can think of 2020 so far. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy for us all to remember all these bad things that have happened. But all the good things, it, they slip our memory, and they slip our brains. Because, again, we haven't evolved to be happy and to be realistic about our lives. We've evolved to survive. Gotcha. So what's the difference between positive psychology and positive thinking? I like to summarize, chunk together pessimism, so pessimistic thinking, positive thinking, and then positive psychology. So three statements. For pessimistic thinking, the statement would be, this will never happen. Positive thinking is, this is going to happen no matter what. And then positive psychology statement is, this could happen. Okay. So that's a good way to kind of think of those three. And really the first two, you can really see that they're very um, extreme in thought. And they are very certain. Like they're very, you know, they're, they know for sure it's either not going to happen or it's going to happen. Where positive psychology has a lot more. Uh, I like to think mystery and excitement behind it. Like, ooh, this could happen. We could try it. Like, let's see what yeah. happens. Positive thinking was something that came about. It actually originated from the book The Secret. Do you remember that from the 90s? I don't remember that It book. was all the craze. It was all the craze in the 90s in the business world. There was a book that came out that was called The Secret. Okay. And it was talking about the secret to success. And the whole philosophy was positive thinking. So if you wanted to make more money, just start envisioning checks coming in the mail. That's what it was famous for, that, that sentiment. Just start envisioning money and checks coming in the mail, and then it will start happening mm-hmm. because you will start doing things to make it happen. Oh, yeah. I've heard that a lot, um, especially in the circles where people talk about manifestation and attra- the law yeah. of attraction and all these things. Law of attraction. Yeah. All those things are related to positive thinking, and it still lingers on. You know, it's got, it's doing, (laughs) it's living its existence and people still really endorse it a lot because if you have the choice between positive thinking and pessimistic thinking, positive thinking is probably better. It's going to 
move you in a place where it's probably better than just giving up. Uh, however, the big problem with positive thinking is what happens when it doesn't happen? Yeah. You know, uh, I am going to get this job. It's done. Done deal. I'm going to get the job. And then you don't get the job. Well, now all of these beliefs that you were just building yourself up for come crashing down and you're right back where you were at the beginning and now you're a failure and what have I done wrong? There's no room for growth or learning or opportunity. Positive thinking is, oh, I think I could get this job. I think I could get it. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do all the things I need to do. And then if you don't get it, there's lessons in resiliency, grit, and growth, which is, okay, so what did I learn from this experience? What can I take away to move forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of a difference between the three there. Positive, positive thinking can be a little dangerous sometimes, depending on who you're dealing with, especially if you're dealing with someone that has had a history of depression. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense then. Circling back to character strengths and relationships, what if somebody thinks that another person doesn't have any character strengths? What then? Like sometimes people get into these toxic dynamics where they just think another person has no worth. What do you say to that? Mm. So, yeah, this is something that is common. And I actually see it in my work, sadly, Aww. that you know, sometimes we have <laughs> kids that have, you know, had lots of negative experiences in their life. And it's really hard. And even from our perspective, sometimes it could be hard to like spot the strength in them because so much of their behavior is problematic behavior, negative behavior. They're intentionally doing things to get in trouble, so on and so forth. Yeah. But the idea would be is to see the strength that is behind that behavior. A great way to think about strengths is that we all have them and we're going to use them. They're natural. They're innate. Think of them as like superpowers. So, you know, Spider-Man has his superpowers of super strength and he can swing in the web and all that. And he's going to use it. But the question isn't whether or not if he has the powers. The question is, is how is he using them? Mm -hmm. So even a student, when it's really hard to spot the strength, I would actually argue that it's probably easy to spot the strength because you're just looking for that energy and you're looking for them using it. They're just using it in the wrong way. They're probably using that strength for, uh, instead of using it for good, they're using it for evil currently. Okay. So a lot of times we'll say things like, oh, that person's just so nosy. Like, why don't they just leave me alone? They're always asking all these questions or getting into stuff. Well, if you look at the strength behind that, that maybe they are misusing it at the moment. Well, actually, they're curious. They're just a curious person, mm -hmm. and that's actually something that's strong in them that is a huge benefit and will help them in having a meaningful and impactful life for those that are in their life. Uh, we just need to have a conversation on how they're using that curiosity, and sometimes maybe they need to ring it in a little bit. Maybe they can play to another strength in that moment. So, yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm aggravating you, you can just be like, Corey, I appreciate your humor because you're being so playful because that humor is one of my strengths. And I can sometimes I can be a little bit overly playful because humor is all about living life with a sense of lightness and joy. Yeah. So. So do you like sometimes say, do you like joke in a serious situation where you shouldn't joke? 
So like, yeah, like when I was growing up, that was a problem. That was me using, I call them shadow strengths. That was me using my humor as a shadow strength. So I would be making jokes when it's a sad time or like we're, even if we're grieving, because I didn't know what else to do, mm-hmm. I'm going to use my strengths. So I'm just like, ha ha. And I make a joke to try to like lighten the mood. Now with my intentionality and being more mindfully aware of my strengths and using them in a way that is more intentional and I like to say like parallel with the direction I'd like to go in my life. I know when it's appropriate to pull that humor out. Maybe I'll use one of my other strengths. Like my top strength is perspective. So I will use that in those moments. Okay. Now. Awesome, Corey. My bottom strength is bravery, if you want to know, too. So. Oh, okay. How do you, <laughs> how do you know what your strengths are? Is there like a test? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So huh, we should let everyone know. And you can actually put the link in the show notes yeah, if you'd like. Yeah. You just go to uh, via.org. So V-I-A. Corey meant to say viacharacter.org. Uh, what that actually stands for is virtue in action. And it's the VIA Institute on Character. They're actually located in, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. So there are some other like strength-based assessments you can do. Like there's Strengths Finder. A lot of people know about the, the, uh, the Myers-Briggs, mm-hmm. those different personality assessments. What sets the VIA character strengths apart is that it's really based in science and not in theory. So it's really based on what I talked about earlier, about them going through and putting it through scientific rigor. Most others, there's a theory that someone develops, and then they just find science to prove their theory, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. It's almost 9, 10 million people have taken the survey so far. It's free. You just go on there and take it, and then it'll pop you the results uh, right back on through 24. Awesome. I'm going to take it before your episode airs. We'll see what happens. Cool. Yeah. Well, when you do, I'd be curious to hear what your results are. I can help walk you through okay. each of them. Yeah, that it. would be so cool. And then we'll post it in the show notes. The big thing you have to fight is the temptation of scrolling to the bottom and focusing on the bottom five. Yeah. I like saying just like, pretend like the bottom five aren't even there. Just ignore them. Like, they're not even real. Okay. People will look at the bottom five, they'll be like, honesties in the last one. They're like, this thing just called me a liar. And I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> it didn't say you're a liar. Uh, it just said honesty is your lowest strength, which means it's the, you know, the hardest for you to do. It's the most emotionally draining. And honesty... The strength goes way beyond telling the truth. Like, it's not saying you're dishonest. Uh, it's really talking about living truthfully to who you are. So someone who has the strength of honesty, their catchphrase is typically, with me, what you see is what you get. Doesn't matter where I'm at. You know, they like if they believe something or have a certain thought, doesn't matter where they are, what the circumstance is. The rest of us are like, oh, God, please don't do this right now. But they're going to do it. Because they got that honesty, and by God, (laughs) this is, we're talking about it right now. You know, that's honesty. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good time to shift into talking about your mind for a little bit, Mm -hmm. just to get to know your mind. Can you describe your thoughts and inner dialogue, like when you're not actively focusing on your thoughts? Like, just how does it go? (sighs) This is a very good question. It's a, I think it's, uh, so from my training as a school counselor, this sounds like almost like a narrative therapy-based question. 
that may have just alienated all your listeners and be like, what is, is he talking about? But <laughs> this idea of like really thinking about what is the baseline behavior of your brain. Yeah. I would say mine, again, my, I have strengths of humor and curiosity. So I'm going to tie it back to that. So my mind, when it's unchecked, normally I am engaging in something like some sort of inner dialogue about making jokes constantly, or I'm in an inner dialogue of like, I wonder what this is. What's over there? What's going on up there? And uh, I do know that can be quite exhausting to the people that are in my life because I'll ask like lots of questions. Like <laughs> my grandfather was an engineer. So I think I inherited that level of just asking questions that no one else asks. Yeah. Like, I'm like, well, I'll be driving along the highway and I'll see like a shed over in a field. I'm like, I wonder who built that shed. What would they make it for? And the person in the car with me is like, I don't know, Corey. I have no idea why they <laughs> built that shed. Why are we asking this? And I'm just like, ah, it's bothering me. Now I need to know who built that. Like, let's pull over. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and talk to the owner. Yeah. So that's my, my brain is constantly just whirling around. And then again, I'm like, yeah, let's pull over. Let's have some fun. And mm-hmm. you chit chat with somebody. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I know you told me a little bit before this interview that you have suffered with anxiety before. Mm-hmm. How does that fit in to your unchecked mind? And then when it starts to creep in, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate to have a battle with anxiety that lasted for about a year in total, I'd say. Maybe a year, maybe pushing year and a half before before I fully felt like it was behind me. Um, and then the peak of it was about six months. Uh, I had some you know, personal things that were happening at that time, uh, just with different relationships, work pressure, all that. And my mind was just going, 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 going with like worry, worry, worry. And up until that point, I thought I was invincible. This happened, this happened like about two years, two and a half years ago. So, you know, mine was going, going, going. And I don't think I could even recognize what worry was, which kind of sounds strange to me now. And I think for a lot of people that have emotional intelligence, they're like, you don't, you don't even know what worry is in your own brain. But I didn't. I just thought I was thinking, I thought I was just thinking about work or thinking about, you know, a family member that was sick. I just thought I was thinking about it. And it wasn't until later when I really, you know, did some reflection that I was like, holy crap, that was, that was worry. That was me just worrying constantly. Mm -hmm. And it crept in and eventually, you know, the pressure of that rumination kind of cracked a little bit i like to think it's like the the glass floor can only take so much and it cracked and all kind of fell through and now i have this cloud that follows me around which is these feelings of you know nervousness anxiousness constantly uh for at some points you know at one point it got so bad i remember i was online just trying to find a therapist and i couldn't read the screen on my laptop because the I just couldn't like focus. I couldn't read the words, and that was scary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it's like a, it's a vicious cycle because you're worried about this, and then that makes you scared, which makes you even more scared. Yeah. And um, at the very very peak, I was also experiencing something called uh, depersonalization. Have you ever heard of that? I sort of have. I don't think I could explain it to you, but let's let you do it. 
you know, this is something that soldiers will experience during wartime, during battles. So like, I'm like, oh my gosh, Gore, you're experiencing this. this is ridiculous. But I have to give myself grace to allow myself to have had that experience. Depersonalization is like pretty much your brain checks out. It's like, this is too much. I'm just going to, I'm going to tap out. I'm leaving. See ya. And your mind really does this weird thing where I like, I didn't know if I, it felt like I was like on a drug or something where my whole vision, it seemed like my vision went flat. Like I had no depth perception. Um, I would be dizzy and just really out of it. And what was the scariest thing was that what I was experiencing in that moment didn't feel real. It's almost like I was watching a movie screen and nothing in the world was real and not even I was real. Uh, and none of this, for someone who hasn't experienced it, they are probably like, what in the world are you talking about? But for those who have experienced it, you can look online and people are like, yes, that's exactly what it was. It was like watching a movie or it was like, even I wasn't real. Uh, and that was like the scariest part because it just felt like I was going to like somewhere else. But pretty much all it was was just my brain being like, okay, I can't take anymore. I'm going to tap out. And all that was left was just, you know, what's coming in my eyes, like the basic sensory stuff. Okay. Yeah. That whole sense of self was gone. Yeah. So how did you stop it? What did you do to come out of that? Yeah, because yeah, I was feeling, I was experiencing panic attacks. I was very fortunate that I was fortunate that I had a master's degree and an undergraduate degree in psychology. So I kind of, once I put my finger on it, I was like, oh, that's what's going on. I was like, oh, then that was a whole nother thing where I freaked out about having it. <laughs> um, but <laughs> once I knew what was going on, I was like, oh, I know exactly what to do. And I started attacking it from like every angle possible. So I increased my mindful practice. I was doing more strength-based stuff. So playing to my strengths intentionally. I was doing more just like relaxing. I was becoming more aware of my worried thoughts. I started journaling. I was doing like six or seven different strategies that if you went to see a therapist, they might suggest that you start and try one. Um, but I didn't do that. I was like, no, I'm doing them all because I don't need to be convinced that they'll work. I know that they'll work. So I just <laughs> did them all. The thing that was most beneficial in the book that I recommend anyone who is struggling with anxiety is called Dare. And it's by Barry McDowell, I think is how you say his last name. I've got it up here on my shelf, so I'm looking at it. Okay. Um, but it's an acronym. And it's Dare, subtitle. The new way to end, end anxiety and stop panic attacks. And it's an acronym. D stands for diffuse. A stands for allow and accept. R stands for run towards. And then E stands for engage. Now, it's an extremely aggressive way of combating your anxiety. So, for someone like me, again, I was fortunate to know that it was something that I could deal with. A lot of people that don't have degrees in this stuff, they have to first go through that journey of understanding that it is something that we can help. You know, you're, when you're really struggling with it, you can feel completely helpless. But me, I was like, oh no, I knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't need to be convinced of the light at the end of the tunnel. So the DARE model probably wouldn't be I wouldn't recommend to someone who's like right at the beginning. This is for someone who's like fed up with it. And they're like, okay, I'm ready to be done with this. 
um, because it takes a level of bravery because you're going to have to face your anxiety head on. You're going to have to really get comfortable with being uncomfortable and you're going to have to pretty much make it, make it like you're, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can cuss on here or, or, yeah, or not, but sure. I was like, yeah. yeah, okay. You have to make your anxiety your, your, uh, your little bitch <laughs> Okay, because <laughs> you have to, <laughs> because you have to reevaluate what it is and get very comfortable with it. And then, realize that it's just a small part and a normal part of your life and uh, change your relationship with it. Cause okay. you know, it's kind of misleading cause it's like, Oh, end anxiety. Like you're never going to end anxiety. You just change your relationship with it. Yeah. That's a really interesting statement. Change your relationship with it. Because I have a question for you that is, does your relationship with yourself become the foundation for all other relationships? So if you're looking at this like you have a relationship to anxiety or just other people or whatever, I don't know how to, it's interesting how that would play out. So is that a true statement that your relationship with yourself becomes the foundation for all other relationships? I believe so. I believe you have to, you know, it starts with a level of self-awareness. You have to know who you are and how you interact and interface with the world before you can I mean, I think you can have relationships. They're going to be mindless relationships where maybe you're not being reflective and thinking about, is this relationship something you want? Is it beneficial? Like, what's its impact on you? You, you can think of teenagers in school that are friends with people. And if you were to ask them, why are you, are you friends with these people? They don't even know. You know, it just kind of happens. Uh, but to be intentional about, like, who you are and who you want to be in this world, it takes a level of befriending yourself first and fully understanding what is, what is this vehicle, this capsule that I'm in. And, you know, that's why I loved your question about like, what is your default brain status? Like what's it normally do? Yeah. Because I think a lot of us can get um, sucked into the idea that everyone's brain, we all have the same thoughts or we all have like, are having the same experience where you know that you and I could be at the same exact place, experience the same thing, and recall it completely differently. Yes. Like you and I can both go to the, I don't know, the Grand Canyon and have a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. I might be completely awestruck and like, this has changed everything. And you could be, oh, you know, I grew up at the Grand Canyon. I've seen it all before. And so nothing's really happening. Yeah. Or anywhere in between those two extremes. Yeah. Well, hey, so how did you, how did your relationship with anxiety change? I learned to appreciate it. Interesting. I learned to appreciate it. Okay. And learned to see it as something that didn't make me weak and made me strong. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, at first I was like, I'm going to get rid of it. But I realized anxiety, when you, when it's placed appropriately and when it's, your stress response system is kicked in appropriately. It is. It's a powerful moment. You know, a panic attack is just when you are having a full-blown stress response system, but there's no stimulus to have it make any sense. So, for example, if a bear busted into your room right now, you would have panic attack symptoms where you would get tunnel vision, your heart would start racing, you get sweaty palms. And your body would prepare itself in an instant for fight, flight, or freeze. A panic attack is the same exact process. It's just that there is no s stimulus. 
or the stimulus is just your own brain. It's your own thoughts that are making you have this reaction. So then you've got this cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. in your head where you're like, oh, I'm freaking out. But like, rationally, it doesn't make sense that I'm freaking out, but I am freaking out. And like, and then, you know, then you get sucked down into this spiral. So I think, yeah, definitely befriending it, learning to appreciate it, that it's something that's natural and something that keeps me safe and it keeps me strong. Awesome. Okay. So you mentioned mindfulness earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about what mindfulness is and then also what are some misconceptions about it? Oh, I love this question. Mindfulness, the buzzword in our society with uh, psychology, everyone is hearing about mindfulness and I love it because it's such a great practice. Mindfulness, unfortunately, though, as you talk about misconceptions, I do believe has been marketed inappropriately here in the West. So a lot of people probably know it does originally come from Buddhist practice. John Kabat-Zinn, who is known as the guy who took that practice and he secularized it through scientific scrutiny. So he pulled it out from the spiritual belief part of it and just said the practice in and of itself is beneficial for your mental well-being. And he defines it as paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, non-judgmentally, in the present moment. I think that's how he defines it. The misconception I was speaking to earlier about how it's been marketed in the West is that it's been marketed as being relaxing, calm, serenity, ah, raindrops and (laughs) wind blowing, and you're sitting (laughs) next to a lake and everything is so fantastic all the time. Yeah. That stuff is great, and it definitely happens if you get more involved with the practice. However, it's not the objective. It's a product, byproduct, really. The objective of mindfulness is just to live here and now and, you know, move into the present moment, embrace the present moment, whatever it is. The reason why relaxing and calm and sitting by a lake happens in marketing is because 99% of the time, things in the present moment are calm and relaxed. So if you can let go of ruminating about the past or worrying about the future or planning for the future and just be here now, things are usually pretty chill and pretty relaxed. But if you're going into mindfulness because you're trying to be relaxed, Mm -hmm. then you've got it backwards. Gotcha. You need to go into mindfulness because you you want to exist in the present moment. That makes a lot of sense. So how can something like mindfulness help in a time of uncertainty, like right now with the pandemic or with societal unrest, with systemic racism or things like that, where you're immersing yourself in these present moments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, a quick, another quick note about the nature of the mind. We have about 68,000 thoughts per day. Ooh. Most of those are budgeted out on, again, thinking about the past or planning for the future. And very few of them naturally are, um, you know, dedicated to what's happening here and now. So I think living in the here and now is important for what we're going through right now, because one thing that mindfulness does, and it's more of an advanced topic, but the more you practice, the closer you get, is this idea of interconnectedness. Uh, Dan Siegel calls it the mui uh, of mindfulness, which is kind of hippy-dippy, but (laughs) it's this idea of there's me, there's we, and it's all connected. Mm And it, what we know from mindfulness practice and what the science shows is that it increases empathy and loving kindness for one another. 
So I think that is something that we all could use a little bit more of during these times when things are so segregated and people are getting so entrenched in you know, their opinions, their beliefs about what are going on. Yeah. That increased empathy. And when I speak particularly to like my, my, my fellows, cause you know, I'm a white guy. <laughs> so it can also increase your ability to realize how little it is that you actually know. You become very aware of like, Oh, you know, I don't know the answer to everything. And I actually know very little about the world and what should be happening and all that. And it can be a very humbling experience to be connected uh, with everything on that level. Yeah. All good stuff. All good stuff, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Definitely. So a lot of people think that mindfulness and meditation are connected. Can you tell us what role does meditation play in your life and how someone can be good at it? And is it is it connected? Yeah, I mean, I would argue it's connected. So mindfulness is more of like, you know, trying to intentionally bring your brain here and now more often. We do that through the practice of meditation. Okay. So there, you know, I break down meditation in two different groups, informal and formal. So formal meditation is where you're sitting down. You've got that 30 minute, 30 minute, 20 minute, five minute, whatever it is. You've got your, you download your app and you have, <clears throat> and you have a teacher that's guiding you through this meditation. That's formal meditation. Informal meditation is where the rubber meets the road. And that's when you're kind of out and about and you realize, hey, my mind is off somewhere. I'm going to go ahead and take a deep breath right now and bring it back to the present moment and start living here now. Uh, how many times have you been driving down the street and you don't realize how you got to where you are? Yeah. You're like, where did the last three minutes, five minutes, oh my gosh, and you're driving a car down the street, which is extremely dangerous to you not fully be present. It's actually a phenomenon that we call autopilot. So if you're living in autopilot, when you kind of snap out of it, you be like, oh, that's a moment where you can bring yourself back to the present moment. And it's not even a moment to get angry with yourself because it's actually a moment of celebration because the moment you realize that you were gone, you're already back and you're already being mindful again because that awareness is there. Yeah. I like that. The moment you realize mm -hmm. you were gone, you're already back. Mm -hmm. All right. So circling back to who you are and what you do, um, you told me that you grew up in rural Kentucky and then you went on to get your master's in counseling, which you talked a little bit about. Um, you've also worked at an inner city school. Can you tell us just a little more about that journey overall, like what it was like, what you went through, what the kids were going through? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's an ongoing journey, too. So in, okay. in no way am I at the finish line looking back saying, oh, look at all this wisdom I've <laughs> gathered. Uh, you know, one of my uh, favorite pieces of advice that I ever got was someone said, uh, it was a professor of mine. And he said, the furthest, the farthest and most difficult journey any person will ever take is going from their brain down to their heart and then back up to their brain again. And, uh, you know, being in Kentucky with that lived experience, you know, I was in a small town. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, there's very conservative 
thoughts there about you know different race groups and all that. One time, actually, when I was in uh, for my counseling program, I remember I went to this uh, this panel discussion that was called uh, "Living Black in Modern America," and so I'm like the only white guy in the audience, but I was there, and they were talking about like systemic racism, and they were talking about you know, how we just got the rebel flags taken down because this is back when that was happening and a lot of the rebel flags were being taken down from, uh, you know, government buildings and stuff. Yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking, because I'm like, wow, like, this is the things that are happening here. I was like, where I'm from, the rebel flags aren't down. Like, they're flying higher and more proud than they ever have before. And I remember that, that thought crossing through my head and it really was kind of a, you know, like a oh snap moment, realizing what my environment had been growing up and how that probably shaped my worldview. And so I think during my degree experience, you know, obviously I had some cultural competency courses and all that, and all that's great. And it's nice in theory, you have a few experiences. I went to New York City and did um, a week there of cultural immersion. So I got to see a plethora of different uh, cultures here living in America. Mm -hmm. But as you said, when I really went to work in the inner city school, that's when a lot of the stuff started clicking and making sense. And when I think a big change in me was happening, the first time I went into an inner city school, I remember I was, I remember I was nervous. And I think that was one area I was excited about like two or three months later. I was like, hey, I'm no longer nervous. Like, so I was like proud of myself. Yeah. And I remember telling a couple of my colleagues and they're all like, yay, way to go, Corey. <laughs> um, some of my African-American colleagues. And I was like, I'm not nervous going in there anymore. But I remember, you know, the culture and the atmosphere was a little different than what I was used to. So it made me nervous. Um, specifically, uh, just like what I noticed was the noise level was higher, if that makes sense. Like yeah. people, they talked more, like they were talking more and pa passionately to one another. Uh, where I'm from, uh, a lot of the guys, you, <laughs> you know, you can get the vision of everyone standing around the truck kind of like with a piece of hay in their mouth, <laughs> just mumbling about the corn or tobacco and like all that stuff. And everything's just you know, that way where, yeah, yeah. um, you know, coming to the inner city where the culture was much more vibrant. Uh, I was like, whoa, yeah. because where I'm from, if something gets loud, that's like, that's when you get nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when I moved to the city, I remember people were honking at me all the time. And I was oh. like, people are honking at me constantly. <laughs> and I remember I was asking my colleagues, cause I'm like, is this normal? And they're like, yeah, I get honked at like almost every day. And I was like, where I'm from, if someone honks at you, like them's fighting words. Yeah. Like I've seen people pull over to the side of the road and like pull each other out of their cars and beat each other up because they honk at each other. Mm -hmm. So that's actually one way that I can share my cultural competency with others. I'm like, if you're out in the country and someone does something you don't like, don't honk. Don't lay in your horn. Don't honk. Because that's da it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, give them a, you can give them a little toot toot. <laughs> that's about all you can do. Anything beyond that, it's like, what was that? Um, but yeah. Yeah. So I think. You know, the cure to any type of ignorance about another culture is experience. So getting in there and making positive relationships with people that were different than me, people that look different, talk different, liked different things. And 
what I really appreciate about what they did for me is that they allowed me to be me too. And they got to be them and we got to be in a friendship, a professional friendship and professional relationship together. Uh, so I felt like I didn't have to change, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, like it was okay that I had no idea what they were talking about or I'd be like, huh? And <laughs> I got to play to my strength of curiosity to ask lots and lots of questions. So, um, meeting with the, the kids, you know, was fantastic. You know, they were all, you know, just super fun. And you know, one thing that one thing that's always hard when you work in school counseling or anything when you work with children. So this isn't an inner city school. This is really an everywhere thing. Mm -hmm. Is you do get those kids that are craving adult interaction and compassion, and so it always pulls in my heartstrings when I hear a kid say things like they wish that they could live with me because oh. you do get that when you work in there and it's that that's a that's a killer yeah especially when you've only known them for you know a couple of weeks if even that so but to get to that level with some of the kids you know yeah it was awesome what do you do when they say that to you how do you react well so uh Great example of a shadow strength. The first time that happened when I was still in my training is I think I made a joke, something like, you wouldn't want to live with me. There's, it's not very fun or something like that. Like I tried to play it off and make a joke about it, which wasn't helpful. What I do now is, you know, it, when you're a therapist, you always try to put it back on them. So when they say, I wish I could live with you, they are, they're putting the ball in my court and like, okay, so what are you going to do with that? Like, so I just put the ball right back in their court and it could just be as simple as asking, you know, what makes you say that? Okay. What makes you say that? You know, or what's, tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, and that's an easy way to keep the focus on them without, you know, making any hurt feelings or saying something dumb like I have done in the past. Okay. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important to say? You didn't ask me if we could be best friends. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm, I've, been, I've been sitting over here just like, hmm, she didn't ask if we could be best friends. But <laughs> all right. All right. That's your, um, that's your humor strength coming out. <laughs> I would be excited for you to go discover your own strengths and then we can do a deep dive into it and talk more about like which one each one means and like you can think about how you can intentionally start using them in new and exciting ways. You can start exploring how you've used them in the past and be like, oh, have I, you know, when have I used them as a shadow strength? Or there's a, also phenomenons called like a hot button strength. A hot button? Hot button strength is, if you're curious, is when you have a top strength and someone else doesn't have it and that bothers you. Oh. So, uh, you know, classic example is if you have the strength of bravery and someone else doesn't. So you're, yeah, you're excited. You want, you're, you're passionate about fighting for justice and you're passionate for fighting for what you believe in. Someone else, that could be a lot more difficult for them. Mm -hmm. So you could get upset and it's a hot button strength because they're not chomping out the bit, jumping up and down, ready to go out and march in the streets with you right off the bat. Gotcha. Uh, so that's something you can do, you know. Strength blindness is an interesting one too. And a lot of people will have strength blindness uh, when they first take the results 
because it's defined by a feeling of apathy. So you get results and you just go, oh, yeah, no surprises here. Okay. That's strength blindness. So that's defined as having a strength, but you don't think that there's anything special or unique about it. You just think it's normal and it's just what everyone does. So the strength that's most associated with strength blindness is kindness because it's actually the one that is uh, most likely to be someone's top strength. So um, on average, it's like the highest strength. So most people who have kindness thinks, well, yeah, that's just what we do. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, But the fact is not everyone has it. And that's something that's unique about you and how you uniquely express it is what's really cool. And with strength blindness, you're really failing to recognize the power of your strengths. Yeah. Well, that's really encouraging to hear that kindness is like the most common strength. That's awesome. The least common strength. So kindness is the most common. The least common strength is self-control. So hopefully that's reassuring too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah. That's, that's us humans in a nutshell, I would say. Yeah. We're... Kind and unable to control ourselves. So. Exactly. All right. <laughs> that, doesn't that just explain the whole human condition there? They're very nice, but they, didn't, they ain't got a clue of what they're doing. They're just kind of... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Well, okay, Corey, where can people find you to learn more? Okay, everybody. If you'd like to hear more from me, I have a podcast called Corey's Got Questions. And on my podcast, the guest brings the topic and the host brings the psychology. So we've had some episodes on metal enthusiasts. I had an episode, Nine Things Your Therapist Wants You to Know. Uh, I've even had one on online dating, had an online dating coach come on and I ask questions based in psychology on whatever it is at their niche that they have. Uh, So season one is available now and look forward to season two uh, coming out later this year. You can also find me at facebook.com slash Corey's Got Questions. That's Corey with an E and then Instagram at Corey's Got Questions. That's where you can find me. Yeah, well, we'll have all that listed in the show notes and those links that you mentioned throughout this episode. Corey, thanks so much for coming on the show. And it has been an absolute pleasure. It has been. Brandy, you're gonna have to come on my show now. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna think of something good. My rule is if someone heard it at a house party, and they would want to know more. Oh, God. Like if you had like a fun, quirky little story. It's been so long since I've been to a house party. I don't even, I don't even know. (laughs) How do we even talk to one another? (laughs) Yeah. One episode I'm really excited about is I have uh, a girl that is a amateur boxer in Chicago that we, I record an episode with and she's known as the girl that got mugged and beat the guy up. That'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at humanamplified.com.